Hello, and thank you for joining us for the Selah Fellowship podcast of our Wednesday services. We are currently studying through the book of Exodus. Please open your Bibles to Exodus as we dive into our study this evening. So, uh, we've been, like I said, we've been studying the civil and the, and the social kind of laws of uh, how they're supposed to live, how they could be right with God, you know, and that's basically what it is. And, and the laws are good, you know. Um, in, in fact, you know, you might have heard as, you know, we were going through them over the last few weeks, a lot of Western culture laws that sounded familiar. Like, well, that sounds like one of our laws. Or, yeah, that's kind of how I was raised to believe that or to know that. And, and that's because America was founded on Judeo-Christian ethics and laws. And our laws came from God's laws, you know. The crazy thing is now we've got like Islamic law trying to make its way into the U.S., Sharia law, to where a whole nother culture or um, pagan religion is coming, trying to influence the way that we would rule this land. Now, this land's getting bad enough without that. But, you know, it's just amazing because God so spoke to this. Just to pick up a couple of verses from chapter 23, in chapter, 20, in chapter 23, verse 24, it says, you shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do according to their works, but you shall utterly th- overthrow them and completely break down their sacred pillars. So you shall serve the Lord God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from the midst of you. No one shall suffer miscarriage or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. So you just see the promises that God has given. You know, don't mess with these people. I'm going to drive them out of the land. You're, in fact, going to be my tool a lot to drive them out of the land, and don't mingle with them. And I will bless you. I will take care of you. I'll remove sickness from you. I mean, some of these things are like supernatural, like awesomeness. Like God would actually show up by blessing the nation so much. And, and, and then we get down to verse 32 and 33. You shall make no covenant with them, nor with their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. So God warning very clearly that tolerance is not the same thing as holiness or righteousness before God. You know, and righteousness is right. Doing right. And we're told to be righteous. You know, in fact, we have the righteousness of Jesus Christ covering us. But in that, then, we are to have righteous works that pour forth from our hearts because we are confessing with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. You know, Romans 10. So the idea that then we would be kind of nulled into, you know, just this idea of tolerance and other faiths and you can have your gods, we'll have our gods and things. You can see how God warned how that would break down a nation and you can see how our, our nation is being broken down, right? So it, it doesn't work. But the law is good. In fact, when David talks about in Psalm 1, when he says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the paths of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Basically, chapters 21 through 23 is the law. It's the covenant that David was talking about when he wrote that psalm. And so you just see the goodness of it, right? Now, as we get into chapter 24, it's nice because as God has brought the law, he's shown us our sinfulness 
with the law. He's shown us our need of a Savior because of the law. Now, well, because of our sin, not because of the law, but the sin revealing it to us. Now in, in chapter 24, we get the, the love and the reconciliation. We get the sacred sacrifice of the blood that now comes in. And, and, you know, of course, great night. I love it when the scriptures that I'm teaching totally correspond with physical act and we're going to celebrate communion tonight, which is all about the blood, right? This is what God has done. So let's begin in chapter 24, verse 1. Now he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and serve, and, and, I'm sorry, and 70 of the elders of Israel and worship from afar. And Moses alone shall come near the Lord, but you, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people go up with him. So interesting, God invites Moses now, you know, to come up here on the mount. Now everybody else has to notice worship from afar. So two things that I observed in this, um, one is the reality of what the law gets you. It does not get you close to God. Because it's impossible to keep it entirely. And if you break the law in one aspect or one point, you're guilty of it all, Scripture tells us. So although it points to our sin and it, and it makes us aware of our sin, it doesn't offer us any power or help in overcoming to be what we need to be, right? So now, though, in Christ Jesus, this is what the Scripture says in Ephesians 2.13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, have been brought near, how? By the blood of Christ. That was us. We were far off. We were, the, we were like the 70 elders. You have to stay back there you know, to worship me. Don't get close because you know, it's not going to go good, right? Hebrews chapter 7, verse 18 and 19 says, For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. So again, talking about what the law couldn't do. There, there was a, a weakness in it. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of the better hope through which we draw near to God. And of course, being from the book of Hebrews, you know that what the author is speaking thereof is Jesus Christ. That whole book of Hebrews is all about the better way in Christ. That every other way, you look at Moses, you look at the laws, you look at the angels, any other kind of way of thinking to get to God is not going to benefit you. Christ is the more excellent way. And, and so just taking that out, because again, the law was of no profit. It can't help us in any way. All it can do is push us, right, to the Lord. Now, of course, we live by grace in that relationship. And Hebrews 4.16 tells us to come boldly before the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Will you accept the invitation tonight to come boldly to the throne of grace to help, to obtain mercy in that time of help that you need it Right now, no better place than before the communion table, right? The, the veil has been rent. The invitation is intimate. You get to come on in and call him Abba, Daddy, Father. Very intimate term in the Hebrews, right? Another observation, though, and in, almost touched on the negative part of it before, but there is a positive where he says that, you know, you are, you are afar off. You are still supposed to notice, come and worship. Even if you're far off, you're told to worship. Which just says to me that 
Sometimes, when I don't feel close to God, I don't feel that there's an intimacy or that I have that connection immediately, right? I am still supposed to come and worship, even if I'm feeling afar off. Because, why? Coming to God is not about feelings. It's not about experience. It's about what the Word of God says to me. And what I'm reading here is Old Testament Jewish leaders, and God is saying, hey, you're far off. Stay that way, because we don't have yet the fullness of the covenant which covers you, but still worship me. Worship me as you know how and where you are, because I'm right there, and I'm going to, I'm going to meet you, right? Because worship is all about who God is, who he is who he is intrinsically. I mean, he, he is God and worthy of our worship. In fact, in the book of Revelation, chapter 4, verse 11, it says, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. God, he's God. And that's why we worship him. It's not about what I can get. Um, you know, what I need help with or rescue me or clean up my mistakes. or I mean, there's all those things that he, he welcomes us in prayer to come to him about. But first and foremost, we are to worship, even if we're not feeling like it, because of who he is. Just that ongoing awareness of, of relationship, right? Now, music's a big part of that. Now, you're just thinking how, how beautiful it was that Katie cut off all the music and it was just a cappella. On that song, because it doesn't, it, we don't have to have music. You know, some some people get in battles about that. They won't worship because, well, you guys don't use guitars, or oh, you guys have bongos. Whoa, Satan, you know, and and they they won't like just bring their heart and hear the words and understand the worship that's worthy from them to God. But they have this. Well, it's got to be a hymn, or it can't be a chorus, or it's you know they they just have certain things that stumble them and mess them up. And I just see here that there's just a, an absolute coming, drawing near. It's all about relationship. It's all about being in the fellowship, being in the service, being, in the, being the part of the body that you're supposed to be because you are part of the body of Christ, right? And with that, then surrendering to his will and purpose for your life. It's not, well, I want to do this, God, so please come along, make this happen, do it this way, this is my plan. It's becoming part of the body as he moves it forward, you know, and really committing to that. That's so much what I need to understand in here. And I see it, Old Testament, going right into the New Testament. Remember, this is always a picture of what we get fulfilled in the New Testament. Old Testament is just a picture, right? So Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which God has said we will do. Now, that's a good thing. I, I don't want to make fun of that or make light of it because the motive, the, the, the MO of our lives should be to follow God in what he says to do. I will do. But there's always this tension, right, when people are making comments with that kind of boldness or it's almost like a self-sufficiency or a self-confidence you know, um, Confidence that, like, yeah, we're going to do this. We are going to do everything you say. Really? I mean, you just got to be real with God. That's what he's looking for. Remember, Peter said to Jesus in, in um, Matthew 26, 33, even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. 
how did that work for him? Cock-a-doodle-doo, right? So watch it, because coming to God is so much more about a humbleness of understanding who we are in weakness, and yet the power he's given us by his Holy Spirit to walk in self-control, walk in love, make right judgments by the wisdom that's available to all without reproach, like James says, ask, you'll receive. Right? But we don't tend to walk in those humbly, but almost in an arrogance feel like, yeah, I'm, I'm walking with God. I know he lives within me. got the spirit. I'll just make some decisions and we'll roll the dice, see how these things work out. No, he's saying, don't, don't do that. Come to me and let's reason together and let's walk together in rightness. And you don't have to do it with a cockiness. Just come, you know, I just read the verse about coming boldly before the throne. That's not a boldness that speaks of my arrogance or confidence in what I can do. That is speaking about the confidence of the door being open and me being able to come intimately right before him to ask for help in time of need. And notice it is for me to ask for help because I need help. I can't do this, you know. So I just, I saw that with... Um, the, the king of the people's bold, you know, kind of, yes, we'll do this, you know. And, you know, I mean, we are, our yes is supposed to be yes, and our no is supposed to be no, and anything beyond that we're told in Scripture is sin. But I also want to make sure that I'm always seeking God and have a dependency upon him, that I'm able to walk in those, in those graces, you know. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord, and he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young men of children, then he sent young men of the children of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in, a, in basins, and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar, and then took the book of the covenant and read in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that. It, the Lord has said we will do. And they add a little thing on here, and be obedient. Right? So they're adding that this time. And Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all of these words. So you get the picture here. Moses wants it in writing. So now he takes everything that he's communicated by the people by saying this is what God has said, and he writes it down, right? Because he, he wants them to really know what they're signing up for, literally. You know, it's, it's a covenant. It's a contract, right? So now sacrifice enters in, though. Now there's a purpose. And so he builds an altar, and he's going to sacrifice and bring the purposes of blood now into it. Because without the shedding of blood, Scripture tells us there is no remission of sin. There's no removal of sin. There's, you can't get away from it, right? The minute sin happened with Adam and Eve, the minute then God slayed the animals and made coverings for them. But animals had to die. Blood had to be shed, right? So the first thing is a burnt offering. A burnt offering is, a, is a, like the consecration offering. It's the all-in offering. You know, the, the, the Jews were to come and lay their hands on an animal, transferring their sin to this innocent beast, you know, hadn't done anything, now its throat would be cut, its blood would be shed, and its death would represent all that their sin now caused this animal. They didn't have to, this animal would, you know, die for them. So it was kind of this all-in, um, you know, I'm yours sacrifice, 
towards God, right? And then there's the peace offering. Well, now, once you've made that reconciliation with God, once you have shed that blood and now your sins have been covered by that animal, because there is no removal of sin by the shedding of an animal blood, right? That's why it took the pure blood of Jesus, the pure blood of God himself to shed, to be shed for the removal, the remission. That's why, you know, red can be now washed white as snow, because really it was purity that saves us, right? Once that's been done, though, and again, this is all representing what God would do in Christ, then there's a peace offering. Now, the peace offering it was really an awesome thing. It's what we're going to actually celebrate tonight, kind of this communion table that we get to have a meal with God. He's inviting us in. You're right with me now. Now come and sup, right? If any man, I, behold, I knock at the door. If any man opens the door, I will come into him and I will sup with him. If any man believes in me and offers and enters and receives me in, then I am going to sup with him. I'm going to dine with him. I'm going to eat, right? And eating, you understand, in the in that Middle Eastern culture in that time of Jesus, it's not just like we eat. You know, you know like it, it, it's not just a, you know, you know, you're just sharing stuff with people and, you know, we got the crackers and the apple or something. And it, 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 their eating was intimacy, like when you ate with somebody, you became one with them. I mean, there was this real etherical kind of like, you know, I'm breaking the bread, I'm dipping it, I'm eating it, you're breaking the bread, you're dipping it, you're eating it, then we're double dipping, then, you know, stuff's starting to mingle together from me to you. And so you were really becoming one with a person. That's why the, the, the religious leaders were freaking out when Jesus was eating with tax collectors and sinners because he was a rabbi and he's not supposed to be eating with those guys because he's going to become one with them. That's why Pharisees wouldn't rub up against people or even touch them because there was this kind of transfer of this osmosis of, of, of sin, of bad, you know. But eating was like the worst thing. And yet here now, once you have received this, practiced this offering, now you get to come in peace with God to have a meal with him. This is the picture that we're, you know, like I said, we're getting tonight and we get to actually you know, practice together, right? But note that first comes the burnt offering. First, the blood has to be shed. First, the sacrificing, the all in, the give it up, surrender, deny yourself has to be in. And then what happens right after that is he ends up um, reading the words of, of, of the covenant. Then he reads the book. So then this is the agreement now. This is what God has done. This is what we have now because of all he's done. Just it, it, Jesus had to make the sacrifice. He had to go all in, the consecrated act of giving it all. Then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Somebody somewhere sometime shared the gospel truth with you and you knew that was God revealing himself to you. Now you might not have known it in those words, but you just know, oh my God, I'm going to hell. Help me, save me. And he did. And then he just began to build on that consecrated life now, that holiness that had been given to him by those peace meals that you'd start having. That even, you know, we're celebrate communion tonight, but even, you know, saying grace before a meal. It isn't just to bless the food that nobody gets food poisoning or something. I mean, there is this idea that God is with us. We're communing together by this meal. And so there's a real beauty in that, right? So I love that, this breaking together, breaking the bread together. So notice that half the blood gets put on the altar. So again, now that, re that represents that consecrated sacrifice 
of the blood. Basically, that is the picture of Calvary. Jesus, you know, putting his blood, spilling his blood, the redemption price now being paid, right? Reads the, the, the covenant to them, and they not only just say, you know, yes, we will do it. So it wasn't just about all the dues, right? This time they said, we'll be obedient. So that's almost more of an agreement with confessing our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to depart the unrighteousness from us. Again, confession isn't telling God what you did. He knows he's God. He was there. Confession is, I agree with you, Lord. What you've revealed to me, what I'm convicted of, what I've been now made aware of, I was wrong. You're right. I'm wrong. Forgive me of that sin. And he departs it from you. Forgives you. Absolutely justifies you because he is just. And departs it from you. Like you've never done it. Remember, that's what justification is. Just as if you've never sinned. Right? And that's, that's supposed to be our, our lifestyle of going and, and doing that, right? But I love this because it is like a confession time when they, they read it and they understand, right? And then it goes on to say that, and then he sprinkles the blood on the rest of the people. Now, I'm sure it was the 70 elders. He wasn't out there trying to get the 2 million you know, Hebrews out there kind of throwing some blood around. But the idea of that relationship now established by the covering of the blood. We're covered in the blood. You hear Pastor Michael talk about that. If it's under the blood then, you know, it, it's done, right? And that's what this is a picture of. The idea that there was this sacrifice that not only reconciled you to God, but now covers you that when he sees you, he sees his son, Jesus, because it's Jesus's blood. Now, back here, it was all just a picture of what that would look like, but this is the picture that we have, this relationship, you know, that, that we actually have and get to celebrate tonight in this communion meal. Then Moses went up also, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. And they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone. And it was like the very heavens in its clarity. But on the nobles of the children of Israel... He did not lay his hand. So they saw God, and they ate and drank. He, they didn't see God, so they, they just ate and drank. So seeing about how God now opens the heaven, and they see God. Now, it's interesting because this morning in our men's Bible study, you know, we down, every Wednesday morning we're down at Coffee Traders, right? And this morning we were just in 1 John four twelve. This is what it says. No one has seen God at any time. I don't even need to explain that. There is no Greek that makes it more clear. There isn't a Hebrew slant to it that it's no God, no one has seen God at any time. John, again, now in his gospel in 1 John chapter 1, verse 17 says, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. There's John again. He likes to repeat himself, right? The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. So Jesus has shown us because no one has ever seen God. And just one more I want to point out. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul says this, I urge you in the sight of God, who gives life to all things, and before Christ Jesus, who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep this commandment without spot, 
blameless until the Lord Jesus Christ's appearing, which he will manifest in his own time. He who is the blessed and only potentate, he's the only high, right, God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone is has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. So there's Paul now bringing up you know, the same idea that nobody gets to see God. Contradiction? Just wanted to sit there for a minute. No, Trinity. This is the Trinity pictured. Again, Jesus revealing, God revealing, the Holy Spirit revealing to us how the Lord's ways are not our ways. Right? Um, in, in Isaiah chapter 6, if you wanted to turn there, this is what you'd see. Otherwise, I can read it for you, and I'm going to explain to you what it says. But in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, it says this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the ten- temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Right? So this is a picture now of Isaiah seeing God. Now, if you would turn there, what you would see is when I start out reading there in verse 1, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the, the Lord, capital L, Small o, small r, small d. And what that Lord means is Adonai. It means the Lord or ruler. And it specifically even goes on to say of men, of God. It's like it's, he is the ruler, of, you know, being all this encompassing Lord controller, right? But then when he goes on to say what the seraphim are singing, what they're encircling the throne of God and crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. That is capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That is the Hebrew word for God Almighty, for what we would say Yahweh or Yehovah, Jehovah. Because they took out the right the vowel sounds because it it was like so holy and and they and so um, important that nobody ever speak that name blasphemous that the writers even took out the vowels that we'd even know what the real word was what the real name of god was like don't say it you know and so t- took them right out now if you go a little farther down in isaiah again chapter 6 verse 8 it says this also i heard the voice of the lord saying whom shall I send and who will go for us? For us? Yes, again, a trinity, right? Then I said, here I am, send me. And he said, go and tell the people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of his people dull and their ears heavy and shut their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. Now, again, why did I read all that? Well, because just to show you that God right there in Isaiah is promising that his Messiah will come, right? That the Lord is going to come. He's the host, right? He's going to send him. 
And he's going to come and offer salvation to his people. He's not going to force salvation. It's not by osmosis that you get it. It is that he offers it and you have to receive it. You have to accept God's offer of his grace that comes through faith in a sacrifice of his son, Jesus, right? Now, I will ask you to turn to John. John's Gospel, chapter 12. Just because we're going to read a few things there. And I think this is just important to see what Moses and the elders are going through, what we have today in Christ, and the access, what that really means for you and I tonight as we come to the table and sup with our God, right? So in John's Gospel, chapter 12, I'm going to begin in verse 37. Although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. So, of course, we're speaking of Jesus, right? And the word of Isaiah the prophet, that the word of, the, of, that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe because Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand and their hearts be turned, so that I should heal them. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. Now, you understand that seeing his glory and speaking of him is what I just read to you from Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah seeing the Lord high and lifted up. Now, again, just to touch on that, it almost sounds like God is cruel. Like he's blinding people so they can't receive Jesus. Like he's actually damning people to eternally being lost. That's not what it's saying. What God is saying is, which is a principle that he laid down really clearly with Pharaoh, is that if... I reveal things to you. Like it started out there in John saying how although Jesus did all these signs and wonders, they would not believe in him. God will honor a heart that says, no, I won't believe. God is showing, he's revealing. Revelation of God is the only way to come to Christ. You can't figure it out. It doesn't make sense. Right, and that's that's why actors can read the Bible because you know somebody gets a part in a play and they're going to play Jesus, you know. So they read the Bible or something to get kind of a, you know, they want the Jesus vibe, you know. But that doesn't mean they get saved. Now, in some cases, they have because the overwhelming truth creates a faith in them that then they come to faith in Christ. But there's no guarantee. That's why there are so many that can read the scriptures and still mock them. Because if they choose to say, no, I will not believe, I will just read without believing, then God will firm up that heart, just like he did to Pharaoh. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Now, you know, understand every time that Moses came to Pharaoh and said, God says, let my people go. That's God's word coming. And Pharaoh would go, no, I will not let your people go. Harden his heart. No, I will not. Harden your heart. No, harden... He just kept going till finally the scripture says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now it's interesting, and I, and I pointed this out on Sunday to the guys when we were, we were teaching uh, DTS, that if you go back and you read, I think, I think it's in chapter 9 that, Exodus, that, that, that um, God hardens Pharaoh's heart. But it's in chapter 7, it's the first time it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. 
and he hardened his heart the first time when Moses threw his rod down on the, you know, we've all seen the movie, right? He throws his rod down on the ground, it turns into a snake. And then Pharaoh causes, calls his magicians and they throw their rods down and they turn into snakes. See, so right away I'm saying, oh, so there's a work of God, huh? Well, you know, my boys can do it too. And they come and they do it. And so at that point, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Now, what he didn't get was the fact that Moses' snake devoured the other two. So you might be able to do a little trick here, but it's never going to overcome the power of God and the truth. And that was the picture. And Pharaoh chose at that point to not believe the sign. See, and that just put him on a road. Now, where is that road of people just, I'm not believing, I'm not believing, I'm not believing. And, and, you know, the scripture says that God's spirit will not always strive with man. There is a point where God goes, okay, have it your way. Romans chapter 1 talks about that. To although they believed in God, they were not going to honor God and worship him as he was worthy. And so God hardened their foolish hearts. Thinking they had become wise, they'd actually become foolish. And so God says, well, then you can have it your way. And it goes so bad that then, you know, that Romans chapter 1 is all about the depravity of how bad it gets when a heart says no to believing in God. I mean, look, at it's all about faith in God. That's what this life is. Get born, believe in God, go to heaven, live forever. That's like the short version of what we should all be about, right? But all of this stuff gets in our way. Our flesh gets in our way. We're born in sin, meaning that, you know, we have that Adam gene in us right from the beginning, right? We've got a world that's controlled by a small G God, Satan. So that loves to distract us and beat us and just work on us, right? All the time. The flesh, you know, our bodies, the, 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 the world around us, we always have to battle these things, you know? So, you know, I'm getting off. But, The point here of the scriptures is the fact that Isaiah saw God and now John brings it clear that what Isaiah saw as he saw God was he saw Jesus, right? John chapter 4, verse 24 says that God is spirit. Again, nobody can see him. Revelation chapter 4 declares that he, when he's talking about God in in Revelations, he talks about the colors of God. He's like a sapphire. He's like a sardin stone. He's like an onyx, you know, kind of this, and he's got a rainbow that surrounds his throne, right? In fact, later on in Revelation 22, it talks about how in the new heaven, there is no sun because God is the light, you know? He is, in, like I just read, he's, he, he dwells in, in an unapproachable light. So he's spirit, right? But wait a minute, Isaiah's seen him, Moses has seen him. It's like how Abraham eventually sees him, walks with him. How does that work? Well, it's called a theophany or a Christophany. Depends on which way you want to go. But it is when God wants to be revealed, he reveals himself in the third person of his trinity, his son, Jesus Christ. Now, back then, because the revealing wasn't ready to be made, you know, God didn't show up and go like, hey, I'm Jesus, nice to meet you, Moses. You know, that's not the way he was going to reveal himself in sending his son first to be born of a virgin to save the world, to, to, to redeem all sin by his sacrifice. So, different way that God works it, but, you know, the, the, just the idea that God is some, you know, old man with a big beard. I'm sorry. Let me apologize for all artists who have ever done bad stuff for church art. 
because that's not who he is or what he is. And he is a he. He's not a force. He's not a nebulous zone like Star Trek or something. He is a father and a son and a Holy Spirit in one God who we worship. So, and again, if that blows your mind, well, good. Because his ways are far above our ways and we're not meant to understand him. And if he was a God that could be understood so easily, we'd probably just think he was like us and somehow figure we had a good argument or something. But anyway, this is all so much, just so beautiful of the truth. And of course, Jesus, when he was with his disciples and you know, he'd walked with him those three years and Philip was like, Lord, just show us the Father. You know, in John chapter 14, he said, Philip, have I been with you so long? You know, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. When Philip's like, show us the Father, he's like, look at me. This is he. I am. Right? I just want you to all really have that worked out because truly, you know, there's just been a lot of talk about cults and stuff lately. And the first attack that a cult will do is against the deity of Jesus Christ. He's not quite all that. It's subtle. They'll still say he's God, or they'll still say he's got a lot of power, or he's still, you know, he's still ruling the heavens or whatever. But really, you know, he was born of a man and woman got together, had two sons, and one they named Jesus, one they named Lucifer, Satan. And so they're brothers, and they both presented their plans of salvation to the parents, to the head dad, and he thought Jesus' plan was better. So Satan got angry, and that's why he's come against Big Brother. He's like, oh my gosh, Steve, like, what are you even smoking? No, that's Mormon. That's Mormonism. That is what the Mormons believe, right? Jehovah Witnesses just believe that he's a manifestation of Michael, the archangel. He's not a begotten son. He is just an angel that appears and said certain things. And so he's still Jesus and he can do things, but he's not God. He's just an angel. That's a different Jesus than the Jesus that we are worshiping tonight because of his body and blood being broken and spilled for us because he is the one and only begotten son. Islam. If you if you go to Jerusalem and you know if you get to go up on the the mount, the top of the mount, been there. Uh, we couldn't go in the dome of the mosque. I don't know if I would have gone in it or not. But anyway, they have this dome up there, the golden dome. You know, and uh, Islam is very, um, you know, that's their holy spot. I think that's where Muhammad. They believe he jumped on his horse and went up to heaven or something at that place. They put the the dome of the rock over that and that gold dome. But around the inscription around that dome says, "God is not begotten." nor can he beget. So, Islam, so, uh, uh, we, we, that, you know, you would say that we worship the same God? Allah is the same as Jehovah, Yahweh, God Almighty? I don't think so. Because Jehovah, Yahweh Almighty, begot a son, one son, and he came and saved me. You say he's not begotten. Well, I can... Literally, God is the, you know, the capital L-O-R-D. Yahweh, Jehovah, is the all-existing one. It, there is no beginning. There is no end of him. So I'm, I'm with you so far. But then that he can't beget? Now you've lost me. Now you're pagan. Now you are a different God. 
And yet you're trying to come and incorporate your laws and your ways of culture and society into a land that I live. God says, don't tolerate. Now, we're far down the stream, and I really think that God's hand is coming off America, and it's all going to wrap up pretty soon. We all know that we're in the last days. It can't go on much longer. When Israel became a nation in 1942, it was, it was 1948? 1942. Eight, right? It was 1948. Sorry. little human moment right there. But when it was May, in May, when they became a nation, um, that started the clock for this generation won't pass away before they see me come back. Jesus speaking. So I'm, I'm excited for that. But what we do in the meantime until he does is we need to keep focused on the right Jesus and be in relationship with him. John chapter, um, or first John chapter two says this, he uh, who is a liar, but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ, Christ meaning the Messiah, the anointed one, right? He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Because they're one. You can't separate them. It's not three people. It's one God in three persons. And again, it'll blow your mind if you try and figure it out too much because that's our God. He's way beyond our way to package him. But this is what we learned. This, this is always interesting, too. This is Isaiah chapter 9, speaking again of the Messiah. This is my last one. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. We understand this is Jesus, right? This is capital S-O-N every time. The government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, with me so far, listen to this one, Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. One of Jesus' names is Everlasting Father. Sure, because he is Jehovah, Yahweh. So just to get that straight with everybody here tonight, that he is who we worship. He is God, the Son, as he is God, the Father, as he is God, the Holy Spirit, dwelling in you, Right? All of that. So this Christophany, which is just a manifestation of Christ, or a theophany, which is a manifestation of God, whichever you want to look at it, this is what they're seeing, right? Because no man has ever seen God and lived. Remember when Moses saw him, went to see him, he's like, can I see what you look like? And God's like, you're toast. You can't see me and live. But you can see my afterglow. You know, that's what it literally says. You can see my backside or something. God wasn't saying like, Check out my back. You know, he was, he was like, put him in a cliff and he covered his face and he let him see his afterglow, just like the, the essence of God in the final passing by. And that even made Moses' face glow, so much so that he covered himself with a veil, right? Now, the writers actually revealed to us in the New Testament that the reason he covered himself was because the, the shine was fading, and as a leader of a nation, the last thing you want is for people to think the Shekinah of God is fading off of you. So he was covering it up. You know, it wasn't because it was going to freak people out. It was because he didn't want to lose who he was. But beside that, though, there, you, you don't stand before God and see him because you just incinerate, you know, just dematerialize or whatever that would be. Anyway, let's go on, and we're going to get to communion. It's awesome. Uh, verse 12 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and be there. 
And I will give you tablets of stone and the law and commandments, which I have written that you may teach them. So Moses arose with his assistant, Joshua, and Moses went up to the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, wait here, wait here for us until we come back to you. Indeed, Aaron and Hur are with you. If any man has a difficulty, let him go, let him go to them. Then Moses went up into the mountain, and a cloud covered the mountain. Now the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses, Come out of the midst of the cloud. The sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. So Moses went into the midst of the cloud and went up into the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. Just, I mean, that is truly an awesome like movie scene, like what that must have looked like or how overwhelming that must have been. And to be there and be told as a people, hey, don't be afraid. This is God. Like, this, this, is, this is your God, you know? But I, I like this, and I just want to touch on one thing, and then we go to communion. And it's right there at the beginning at verse 12 when he says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and be there. Now, I wasn't around on the inception of the Ignite program with Potter's Field, but I do know that they have a time called On the Mount, short for On the Mountain, right? And the idea is that you go to this place and spend it with God. You spend time with him daily. And that's what he basically says. Come up to the mount and be there. So just come up and read a few things or say a few things or even sit there and think about a few things. Be there with me. That's what that phrase means. Be here, right? So we actually have, you know, in our work environment here now, an hour a day when people need to spend that time with the Lord. And you can see how God is inviting that and wanting that because it's all about the relationship with him. So I encourage all of you, you know, to make sure that you are spending on the mountain time with God. You have a relationship with him. He is your daddy. He has redeemed you from your sins. He has given you a new life, your new creation in him. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. You've got it all in him. It's all in Christ, everything. To not spend time with him, to not invest in relationship with him, really dangerous territory. Now, his love never fades. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Just read the end of Romans chapter 8, and you're like, boom, God loves me. Yes, but how are you connected with the plan and the purpose, the part of the body, and the gifts and talents that he's given you to be able to manifest him to this world that is dead around you. And he would have them to look at you and go, can I have some of that? Like, where'd you get, what are you drinking? Right? And what you should be drinking is the living water so that the world would ask. First Peter chapter 4.10 says that every one of us has been given a gift to manifest it, to manifest the grace of God to each other. Right? So without that manifestation, we're not fulfilling who we really are for his, him and his purposes. And his purpose for us is really to manifest it, that we might take the ministry of reconciliation out into the world. Because we've been reconciled. That consecration offering, 
that first burnt offering. And now we have peace with God. Peace because of his blood and because of his body. Not because of what we've done, not because of what we were able to manifest or to bring or anything. You just see that this is all, he's saying, come up. And I, and I like how it even ends right there where it says the sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire, right? Now, Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, New Testament, tells us the same thing. Our God is a consuming fire and actually warns us that it's a fearful thing to fall into his hands, right? And, and that, that's not a threat. It's, it's literally just encouraging us so much better right now to let the refiner's fire Burn out of you those things that he knows will only take you down and take you away from the relationship and the purpose that you've been created for now in Christ Jesus. We're his creation, made for good works, right? Ephesians 2.10. His poem being written, right? But if you, won't let that, if you won't let that fire right now refine you, you will find it will burn up your hay and stubble that you're working for in your life when you get to heaven. I'm not saying you're not going to heaven. I'm saying when you get there, it burns up, right? But the gold and the silver and the precious stones are those things that we've done with his spirit leading us, his motive in our hearts behind us, and doing what he has created us to be and to do. And I think that's, as we come to the table tonight, what we should remember. The access we have, capital A, access, through the blood and the body of Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, and yet still our brother and our friend. Because he tells us, he tells his disciples, I, don't, I call you my friends because I tell you what I'm going to do before I do it. He will tell you all things if you will sit on the mount with him and listen daily to this book. And if you're like, no, no, that doesn't work. I had a believer once talking about the same thing. He's like, well, I don't know. I don't hear from God the way you do. I don't, it just doesn't work that way. Well, then you're not going to him and asking and waiting and reading. And sure enough, of course, he's not. You know, I, I've always found there's, there's, there's only two purposes why counseling is necessary in the church. One, you don't know the word of God. Let me tell you what it says. Or two, you know, but you're not doing it. Let me provoke you to love and good works. You know, if, if everybody walked in those two principles, there'd be no counseling. Oh, no, there's another one that is always like, are you tithing? Because then that's ripping off from God, and that's, that's a whole other study. But he challenges us, don't rip me off. I got problems with people that do that. But the idea that we have this relationship that he desires above all to have with us. That's why he revealed himself to you. And now daily just says, come to the mount and be there. Man, what an invitation. Thank you for joining us for this study through the book of Exodus this evening. If you would like more information about Selah Fellowship, please visit us on the web at selahfellowship.org. While you are there, feel free to check out some of our other messages and past book studies. Thank you again, and God bless.